Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 156. We haven't had a Q&A for quite some time, so it's actually a good chance to unload some of the questions that have stockpiled from emails and some social media submissions. It was interesting that the three questions I'm going to answer today all kind of took a little bit more of a clinical tone. So they have to do with injury stuff, um, you know, rehab timelines and MRI reads and various odds and ends on... Um, on how shoulders just don't seem to do quite as well as elbows um, in the surgical realm and the rationale for it. So I'm actually excited to dig in on this. I like to nerd out and some of my, my best conversations over the years, I feel like have happened with orthopedic surgeons and physical therapists, um, you know, talking about some of these topics. So we're going to dig in on it today and uh, we'll get right to it now. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the most comprehensive NSF certified for sport daily nutritional supplement I've ever tried. With so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients they need to thrive. As a father of three young kids and a co-founder of multiple businesses in multiple states, on top of still being an avid exerciser, I know that busy schedules can really take their toll on us. Whether it's poor sleep, exerciser life stressors, environmental factors, or simply not eating enough of the right foods, we can wind up deficient nutritionally. This is where Athletic Greens can really help. It's a game-changing nutritional insurance policy. They simplify the logistics of getting optimal nutrition on a daily basis by giving you just one thing with all the best things. And that's why I use it daily and recommend it to our athletes. One scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more. They work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, increase energy and focus, aid in digestion, recovery, and supporting of a healthy immune system. This all can happen without taking multiple products. While most nutritional products come to market and stay stagnant, Athletic Greens continues to obsessively improve this one holistic formula based on the latest research, producing 53 improvements over the last decade. They invest in the most absorbable and natural source of each ingredient and go above and beyond in third-party testing to ensure their customers continue to receive the highest quality and best daily nutritional habit on the planet. It's lifestyle-friendly, whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, and contains less than one gram of sugar without compromising on taste. They put 75 ingredients to the NSF for Sport certification to come up with a formula that's trusted by some of the world's best athletes, including our own. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving our listeners 10 free travel packets with their subscription. Simply go to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy to receive my offer. These travel packs are perfect for supporting your immune system, energy, and gut health when you're traveling for games, training, or simply when you're on the go. They can be a great counterbalance to less than ideal on-the-road food options. So if you want to bridge the gap between deficient and optimal and give yourself the best chance to get nutrient diversity, then head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy and get your 10 free travel packets today. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y. For our first question of this month's Q&A, it is, do you have any tentative guidelines for working with post-op Tommy John patients who are trying to maintain a training effect during the rehab? Um, this is really our wheelhouse at Cressy Sports Performance Florida. I think over the years we've, you know, developed kind of a, a reputation for helping a lot of injured athletes work their way back uh, to previous levels of performance or, you know, to come back even better than they were previously. So, um, you know, I think the first thing that I would always emphasize when you're dealing with post-op you know, patients in the gym setting is um, something I learned from one of my graduate school uh, professors, Dr. David Tiberia in the physical therapy department at the University of Connecticut. 
you always emphasize be as aggressive as possible, but do no harm. So I think, you know, early activity is really key for these players and, and you definitely want to get them feeling like an athlete and not just a patient, but we also want to protect against downside. In those, in those first two weeks post-op, there's obviously a risk of infection. There's a risk of setbacks if they don't really follow that acute protocol really right to a T. You know, some athletes may be on painkillers. There's, there's just a lot of variables there. So we generally don't like to see guys back in the gym for about two weeks post-op. Um, but we really, over the course of a longer Tommy John training protocol, we have four primary goals. The first one is, you know, early on, you want to attenuate detraining. In other words, there's always going to be a detraining that takes place, um, you know, surrounding this surgery. And we want to make sure that we, we stop that in its tracks as quickly as we can. Um, second, we want to address the, the causative movement dysfunctions. People don't just get injured for no reason. Typically, there's some kind of, um, you know, movement fault that, that may have predisposed them to that injury. And, you know, and certainly there's a, an element of chronicity um, in a lot of these injuries. People who had a, you know, a low grade partial UCL injury in their teenage years that, you know, finally went when they got bigger, stronger, sort of throwing harder and optimizing their mechanics. And, and those are tougher cases in terms of, peeling back the layers of uh, the onion and feeling you know like you found a lot of different movement dysfunctions but i do think it's important for us to recognize that there are always things that athletes can work on i think third you have to enhance mood like i mentioned you want to make sure that athletes feel like athletes and not just like patients getting them around their teammates getting around other people who have gone through this process so that they do appreciate the light of the tunnel um you know we know is there's about a 14 month timeline on return to, to action for for tommy johns um we had a great episode with um with dr jeff dugas and, and also with stan conti on some of the tommy john timelines and it seems like there's a six or eight week standard deviation um you know on that timeline so we need to be mindful of you know athletes may be on on the shelf really for a year to 16 months and you know it's a long time so you do your best to keep them engaged and, and really loving the training process over the course of time and then you know piggybacking on that number four you know preserve the athlete lifestyle i think we all know the player who who really won't eat well get on a consistent sleep schedule they just they won't live a healthy lifestyle unless they're actively training and i i'm always really really concerned when i see an athlete who does this in the in the post-op period just because you really want to lock that stuff in you know when you're, you're kind of going through those initial stages of healing and trying to bounce back so that you can get started on training and working on things as quickly as you want um, so we want athletes to, to really get in that mindset soon afterwards and it's one reason why we try to get them back in the gym soon later some people are just way more adherent to nutrition's you know total exercise package when um, you know, they're, they're all in on, on doing things and, and certainly sleep quality goes in line with that. So attenuate detraining, address the causative movement dysfunctions. You want to enhance mood and you want to preserve the athlete lifestyle. And obviously this is done, you know, in conjunction with, with good rehabilitation specialists, whether it's a you know, physical therapist or, you know, an athletic trainer in the college setting. So, um, one of the things that I think is really, really important to consider though, that, that you know, speaks to the detraining point I made before, um, is that you know really aerobic capacity and strength are actually preserved relatively easy. If we look at the research, you can probably train those as as little as every three to four weeks, and they, they generally stick around really well. Um, but power is what detrains really, really quickly. Um, if you look at the various research studies on this, you know, as little as five to seven days of no power, um, you know, training can really start to create you know, a loss in this realm. And unfortunately, it's really the hardest thing to train in UCL reconstruction scenarios. So, you know, just to, to map out what happens is, all right, player hurts his elbow and then, you know, he's on the shelf for a couple of weeks as he gets, you know, his diagnoses, maybe his second opinion, scheduled surgery, finally has the surgery, you know, maybe it's two weeks since the initial injury. And then there's going to be those two weeks where you can't really do a whole lot. So you, you've detrained for a full month there. 
And the problem is right when they come back, it's really hard to do a lot of your classic power training exercises, things that were involve a lot of arm swing. Those, those are going to be hard in the acute stage. So what you're really looking at for athletes, you know, is, is in many cases, six to eight weeks where they really can't train power hard. That's a, that's a long time to detrain. Um, and I would add that some athletes may have even gone through like a conservative rehab progression that, that just didn't work out well before they finally had their surgery. So that, you know, that eight week period might be, you know, really on the low end. Some athletes it's, you know, it's 10, 12, it could be even longer where they've kind of detrained as they've gone through rehab that may be, you know, excessively conservative. So what it speaks to is that you really have to get back to power training as quickly as you can, as long as it's safe. Um, because we do have, you know, a fair amount of data that shows that athletes really aren't back to their, their pre-injury power numbers until about five to six months post-op, you know, in many cases when they're already well on their way on their throwing program. So these are all considerations, but when I look to break down, you know, our post-op Tommy John timeline, I, I break it into phases. And, and for me, the first phase is weeks three to six. And I want to emphasize that, that these, you know, things I'm going to outline actually relate to a palmaris longest graft. Um, and it's going to be markedly different if you have someone who has a gracilis graft. So a graft from the forearm is going to be generally a lot easier to train around than a graft in the leg. You know, when we see these gracilis grafts, some of them, you know, they are a little bit cranky until, you know, weeks 10 to 12. So you have to be a little bit more mindful of when you introduce sprint work. Um, when you introduce a lot of lower extremity loading, you have to be a little bit more mindful of it. You're probably starting with more isometric stuff in that, that crew. And instead of, you know, pushing as hard as you might otherwise do. So assuming a Palmaris longest graft, you know, in that first phase from weeks three to six, we're, we're really going to work to optimize alignment and whole body mobility. So we want to get them on an individualized warm up, something that, you know, may have some positional breathing in it, maybe ha has some hip shifts if they're a big, you know, PRI candidate, um, you know, certainly working on a lot of things that, that don't require them to obviously use that affected arm. So like a pullback butt kicks, you know, going to be off the table, but you can do a lot of other conventional mobility exercises. We want to work really hard on single leg balance. Um, there's some, some predictive value there, I think, with respect to, you know, command and, and certainly if an athlete can't stand on one foot and, you know, that's something that needs to be addressed during a, a length of rehab timeline just because it is free training and it, it doesn't really, you know, create a lot of fatigue. Um, and then I'm a big believer early on is, is challenge the lower extremity with higher volume strength training. Um, you can do a lot of stuff for these athletes. Um, generally don't want to load them like crazy, but you can put a quite a bit of volume at them. I generally avoid the safety squat bar with these athletes for this first six week period. Um, you know, we'll do some more stuff that just gives them a little bit more safety where, you know, God forbid they have to bail out or anything like that on an exercise. So there's a lot of stuff that you can do that's a little bit more self-limiting. Um, but you can also build the, the aerobic base with cycling, you know, arms free elliptical work. You can do incline walking on the treadmill. Um, those are all super helpful, you know, build an aerobic base then, and you're generally going to bounce back well between sessions, certainly between sets, things like that. So I think a robust foundation of aerobic, uh, you know, base is important for everybody in the, in, in really any sport and, and baseball is no exception. Um, I'm a big believer in contralateral arm training. So, you know, if you have a Tommy John on your right side, we're going to really train the left arm like crazy. We get this, you know, this cross transfer slash cross education effect where it won't do a lot to minimize the atrophy or the muscle loss on that surgery side, but it will do quite a bit to really help, um, you know, players not quite lose as much strength. So certainly has some endocrine benefits and, you know, some, you know, uh, you know, a collection of different, you know, uh, glucose disposal benefits, all these different things to keep athletes body composition where they need to be. Um, so it's, it's a way to get some exertion out of them without really setting them back. And then, you know, as you get closer to the end of that, you know, 
six week post-op mark, um, you know, really you're, you're looking at trying to get a little bit of power training in, in place. So maybe there's no arm swing, maybe the hands are on the hips or the arms are overhead. You can start doing some, some, you know, skipping and things along those lines, some, some pogo hops, just some stuff to get guys uh, moving just a little bit better. Um, and, and I would also add is as you get closer to that four to six week mark, I love marching. And the reason is very simple is when you have someone who's been in a, in a brace in their arm and obviously even before that, a little bit more limited in their motion, one of the things that we actually lose is the arm swing during the gait cycle. And that arm swing is critically important for preserving rotational capacity. When you swing your arms and your legs, you know, in a, in a cyclic fashion, you're really working hard to create rotation, you know, not just of the spine, but, but certainly at the, you know, the shoulder at the hips and above and below those. So I, I'm a big believer that we got to get the arm swing back as quickly as we can after, you know, any kind of upper extremity surgery. It's a little bit easier than elbow as opposed to a, you know, a shoulder surgery where you, you might be thrown in a sling, but I love getting athletes marching just because it kind of emphasizes that rotational capacity just a little bit sooner. So, um, you know, big picture, you know, we're, we're just making sure that we don't interfere with the healing process and set anybody back early on. Um, but there's plenty of stuff you can do. You can do plenty of safe core training as well, too. I, you know, you're not going to be able to do your chops and your lifts and your rollouts and your fallouts, but we can do off bench oblique holds. Um, we can do a lot of like partner assisted perturbations while people are in split stance. There's a lot of different things you can work on to, to train that without setting them back. Certainly things like dead bugs and, and the like should be totally fine as well. Now, Phase two, which really runs from weeks seven to 10 is largely a continuation of phase one, but we do have some, some modifications. You know, first, typically surgeons are going to clear athletes for some easy arm swing and, and sprinting around the nine to 10 week mark. Now that's not the case for absolutely everybody, but it, you know, I, my experience has been that most people do trend pretty well in this direction around that time. Um, we'll start to integrate more bilateral lower extremity loading as, as long as they've got someone who can load the plates for them. So this would be stuff on the safety squat bar. Um, you know, they, they might do, you know, axial loaded, you know, uh, you know, split squats or, you know, forward reverse lunges, something like that. Obviously want to make it, always want to make it safe, whether it's spotters working in, you know, in the rack with pins just to make sure that they ever have to bail out that they're not going to fall on that surgery side. And we also, you know, around week seven, give or take, um, you know, is that, that second month of training really starts going, we'll integrate some, some strengthening stuff on the surgery side. Um, but our rule of thumb is they always test the waters in, in physical therapy. So they'll do some light stuff on the affected side. You know, once they're, they're doing their PT and then, you know, once the PT gives us the thumbs up, we'll start to integrate in their training program. So they might have a, you know, split stance, low cable row, you know, on their, their left arm only if they're a Tommy John on the right side. And eventually that PT gives them the clearance and they, you know, they just go to the lowest setting on the cable and they go to 10 and they go to 20 the subsequent week. And you just kind of add, you know, 10% a week. And it always seems to work out well um, to get them going. I also really like the idea of, um, doing some, some medicine ball shot put and scoop toss on the non-surgery side. Obviously you're not going to do a whole lot in the, you know, bracing in terms of the surgery side, but you can do a lot of really good work, um, just to start training power in the contralateral direction. We like using the 3d strap, um, on the, the injured side, um, just to kind of preserve some rotational capacity in that direction. Really love Proteus in this time period. Do we'll do Proteus rotational press rows quite a bit with our athletes um, around this timeline, um, and that's been a real difference maker too. Also gives athletes a little bit of a chance to compete, start to see some you know some quantifiable feedback on on power development, and I think that's you know critically important for them. As we get to phase three, weeks eleven to fourteen, 
Um, we'll do a gradual progression of loads in all of our upper extremity resistance training on, on the surgery side. You know, we'll start to integrate some light dumbbell deadlift variations. Um, we'll integrate some light rotational med ball scoop tosses at four pounds once the, you know, the physical therapists have done it as well. Um, and the goal with these is not so much to train power. It's more just to feel rotation. So, you know, really that med ball is a light prop. They'll usually start with the two pounders and then go to the four. Um, and then, you know, obviously this is the time period where they, they start to get more unrestricted, you know, sprinting and, and lower extremity, you know, plyometrics, whether it's box jumps, you know, a lot of stuff that allows them to swing their arms. And, and you'll actually see a lot of athletes around the 14 week mark that, you know, are really getting closer and closer to, to even strength side to side. They're probably about 80%, um, I'd say in most cases of the, the surgery side by this point. And certainly phase four, weeks 15 to 18, that's when our medicine ball volume tends to ramp up a little bit. We'll start to do a little bit of overhead work at four pounds. We'll start to do a little bit more rotational scoop tosses at, at four to six pounds. And really our goal is even strength on our strength training exercises by about the 16 to 17 week um, post-op mark. Um, I like to integrate some light trap bar deadlifting you know, with, with prescribed loads for athletes, um, you know, at this time as well. And, and, you know, certainly continue on our sprint, our plyometric focus, the athletes should start to be getting much, much stronger by this point. So you can start to build things out. Um, and then, you know, phase five weeks, 19 to 22, um, you know, I'd say most, uh, of our, our, you know, doctors that we're interacting with now are, are getting people started, you know, anywhere from five to six months. Very rarely do we see the four month timeline nowadays. I think just about everybody has, has gone to, you know, the five and six month timeline. Some people are 24 weeks. Some people are six calendar months. Some people are 20, but it's, it's always in this realm. So phase five for me is, is weeks 19 to 22 post op. Our medicine ball work is close to 100%. Um, you know, we're, we're still not integrating any shot puts. We're doing the scoop toss. We're doing some overhead stuff. Um, we continue to progress our deadlifting loads. You know, you see athletes, you know, 185 to 225 around this timeline. Just, you know, we'll have them focus on moving it fast at first and we'll gradually build that load. And then, you, you know, you have to continue to train power in the lower extremity at this time. You started to build the strength back up and, you know, you've got to really emphasize, um, you know, how to use that force that you're reacquiring. And then there's, there's obviously an integration of the throwing program around this time. And what you want to be careful of is how you schedule your week out is you want to kind of consolidate stresses so that, Hey, maybe they throw on one day. You don't want to have a ton of grip work the next day just so they can throw again the next day. Um, you know, you do want to give the, the, you know, the forearm just a little bit of a break throughout the week. So we try to consolidate as best as we can, you know, and then once you get to week 23 and beyond, you know, eventually you're going to get to the point where you have to pair back on, on strength training and, and medicine ball volume. Um, seems to be a, a really important, you know, thing to, to build up. But once the throwing volume and intensity ramps up, you do need to pull back in the weight room. And, and a lot of athletes that we see around the seventh and eighth month mark will go back to three days a week of lifting. Um, you know, we will, like I said, try to com consolidate some of their stress. One of the things that I think is actually critically important, um, is, is being just mindful of the amount of gripping that takes place in the weight room. A lot of athletes get to that eight and nine month mark, um, where throwing volume is really ramping up. You know, they're getting closer and closer to being off the mound. And what you realize is that, you know, their flexors getting beat up protecting their UCL. Um, they're still doing a lot of, you know, direct forearm exercises in their physical therapy. And then they're also doing, you know, their, their strength training stuff. Sometimes it can just be a little bit too much for them. So I, I think, you know, we, we tend to see people have some issues most commonly, I think in that nine and a half to 11 month mark post-op. So I just always try to be mindful of managing that total grip volume, I'd say between weeks 24 and, and 36. Um, but, you know, key priorities, 
um, you know, gain range of motion and try new things in physical therapy over the, the course of that experience. Um, you know, progress things, you know, with the PT's recommendations, whether it's med balls going from, you know, four to eight pounds rotationally or four to 12 pounds overhead. Um, but really where strength and conditioning comes in is, is we build volume and intensity in that realm with the agreed upon guardrails, what the, what the physical therapist really sets out for us and what the throwing program dictates for us. You know, we kind of work with those confines. So early on the, the strength and conditioning is a little bit more of the show. And then the goal is to get out of the way once you've established a, you know, a higher level of, of training foundation. So hopefully that all makes sense. Um, one of those ones where you might not use it right away now, but you know, if you do come across an athlete, this might be a, you know, a 20 minute or so clip that you'll go back and listen to as you kind of map out your plans for them. We interrupt this episode with a quick reminder that this podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's NSF certified all-in-one superfood supplement with 75 whole food source ingredients designed to support your body's nutritional needs. I use this product daily and a ton of our athletes do as well. Head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy and claim my special offer today for 10 free travel packs with your first purchase. I'd encourage you to give it a shot too, especially because of this great offer and because it gives you peace of mind knowing that you're covering all your nutritional bases. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y to get that special offer. For our second question, we have a quick one. It says, what do you think when you hear that an MRI is quote, clean, end quote. Um, I actually think this is a great question because we hear this all the time in the mainstream media, but we also, I think, hear it a lot when, you know, a young athletes dealing with some kind of, you know, arm issue or, or really where, anywhere else in the body. And, you know, a doc will, will give them that read over the phone. And, you know, the, the truth is, there's really no such thing as a clean MRI. And you're always going to find, you know, things on that, whether they're, you know, false positives, or you may miss something that's, that's more frank, um, that's there that, that may in fact be clinically significant. So, um, you know, what, if we use the example of a shoulder MRI, you know, an MRI is going to show us the rotator cuff. It's going to show us the labrum, the, the actual glenohumeral joint. So that could be the bone, the cartilage, you know, it could be something called a Bennett's lesion that we see sometimes in, in throwing shoulders. Um, it'll be the bursa, the biceps tendon, the glenohumeral ligaments. Um, you know, certainly the chromioclavicular joint, like these are some of the big things that you always, you know, will look for on a classic shoulder, right? But what's interesting, if we, we talk about, you know, baseball players, some of the stuff that, that actually is missed on a shoulder MRI relatively commonly are things like the lat and, and Terry's major. And the reason is they, they actually attach further down on the arm. So a traditional shoulder MRI will sometimes miss them because it doesn't cut wide enough. Um, pec major would, would certainly fall into that category, even though it's maybe not quite as common in throwers. Um, so we're seeing, you know, some of these injuries that which actually may present more like shoulder issues that are getting missed on shoulder MRIs. And then also we have, you know, this, this neurovascular bundle that really, you know, passes the shoulder joint and nerves don't really show up on, on, on uh, MRIs. Um, you know, we don't get an appreciation for, you know, how hypermobile a joint is, whether there's kind of play in the joint capsule. Um, it doesn't give us necessarily a, a perfect, you know, image of, of the chronicity of things, how long stuff has been going on. You know, certainly you can get like acute on chronic reads in some cases that can be a little bit more definitive, you know, but sometimes it's hard to differentiate between something that's been there for many, many years that might not be significant versus something that's, that's brand new. And then certainly there, you know, there's simply things that, that radiologists or doctors don't see. Um, you know, if we, we look at this, sometimes it can be a little bit more like 
art. And, you know, there's a lot of different, you know, visuals to look at. And, and we had a great uh, podcast with Dr. David Alchek, um, you know, early, I think in 2022. And one of the points he made with respect to subscapularis tears is you'll actually see scenarios where, you know, doctors or radiologists forget to look at one specific angle. And so that's a, a diagnosis that can sometimes be overlooked if you don't, you know, check every one of the films that comes through. Um, and there was an interesting study back in, in 2016. Um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing the same name. It's Batnagar um, et al. Um, in the, the Journal of Clinical Diagnostic Research. And the, the title of the study is Correlation Between MRI and Arthroscopy and Diagnosis of Shoulder Pathology. So they actually went and they, they looked at 39 patients um, who basically had imaging and then had, had follow-up, you know, arthroscopic interventions. And they, and they showed that the MRI had really, really good sensitivity with the diagnosis of rotator cuff tears and, and osteochondral defects. It had pretty good sensitivity for bank art lesions, but it had, you know, poor sensitivity to defects, detect slap tears. Um, and, you know, to give you an example of some of the, you know, actual numbers, um, you know, if, if you look at the MRIs, they diagnosed 31 rotator cuff tears. And then when they actually went in, you know, arthroscopically, they found 34 in this population. On MRI, they found three slap lesions. And then when they went, they found 13 of them on arthroscopic intervention. Um, when it comes to bank art injuries, 12 on MRI, 15 on arthroscopy. And, and whereas the osteochondral defects, it was seven and seven. So relatively good in that regard. So, um, you know, people are typically a little bit more broken than an MRI, like implied. And this is why you'll often see radiologists and doctors imply that something is more clean than it might be. You know, a, a slap injury could just be a little bit of, you know, fraying on the labrum that's, you know, found in every single throwing shoulder and, and may not be clinically significant. So this is where some of the, the, you know, commentary about clean MRIs actually really comes. And, you know, having looked at, you know, more radiology reports than I can count and, you know, not just, you know, high level throwers, but also really, really young ones. Uh, you know, you don't see a normal elbow anymore. You don't see a normal shoulder anymore just because of the stress that's imposed in this game. So, you know, I think we need to be mindful of that. But what's really fascinating though is that there was another study from, from Turner and colleagues who photographed the faces of 267 patients two minutes before they underwent a CT scan. So they took 15 radiologists to interpret those CT scans um, with the patient's photos alongside them. And then they completed a questionnaire. So three months later though, they took 30 of the CT scans that included an incidental finding. Um, so, and then they were shown to the radiologist again without the patient photos. So study participants said that seeing the photograph did not increase the amount of time it took them to interpret the scan, but they did say they interpreted it more meticulously. In fact, 80% of the scans reviewed without photos, the radiologist didn't report the incidental findings that they had seen when they originally viewed the images. So this is a really big deal is that you know, basically when a radiologist sees someone's picture before they read a scan, they are more likely to dig a little bit deeper, comment on absolutely everything. So we realize even more and more that this, this concept of clean um, becomes a little bit more vague is that, you know, everyone's definition of what's clean is probably a little bit different and, and their interpretation, you know, some people will read in them very boldly and meticulously and point out every little um, finer subtlety. And, and we've seen scenarios where that's probably happened over the years when, you know, teams are trying to negotiate down signing bonuses on draft picks or things like that. Um, we'll see other scenarios where maybe a uh, a doctor or y'all just a little bit too laid back and, and may miss something, you know, that is actually really clinically significant. I, I think Bennett's lesions are a great example of that in throwers. They're, they're often missed on, on imaging and sometimes can actually be a, a difference maker for an athlete. 
So big picture thoughts, you know, not all diagnostic imaging techniques are created equal. Not all radiology equipment is, is equally up to date and, and not all radiology technicians, um, you know, and radiologists and even doctors, you know, maybe paying the right amount of attention to what they're doing. So what it really, really speaks to is that, you know, everyone is broken to some degree and everybody's interpretation of what's going on um, is going to be a little bit different. So you know, what's the message for the, the people listening to this podcast, whether they're, you know, players, coaches, parents, or, you know, or people managing, you know, these athletes and, and, you know, in tricky scenarios like this, absolutely everyone you evaluate or train is going to be broken in some capacity. You know, certainly you can look at shoulders and, and see slap tears in every single throwing shoulder. But we look at spines, you know, disc herniations are, are normal findings um, in a number of asymptomatic people. We see these same things with elbows, knees, you name it. Um, so I wouldn't be freaked out when you read a health history or meet someone you know, who loves to hit refresh on WebMD and, and self-diagnose. And this certainly extends to, to post-surgery scenarios. These are, these are complexities that you have to be mindful of. But, um, you know, I'm always a guy that, that wants to dig deep on things. Um, and I think, you know, my interpretation of the, 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 the comment that somebody has a clean MRI is really going to be impacted a lot by what their, their history is. If there's, you know, no history of symptoms and they're performing at a high level and they have a clean MRI that they walk in with, I feel pretty good about it. Versus if it's someone who's had continued failed bouts of physical therapy and rehabilitation just hasn't worked and they're still having pain. You know, I do want to dig a little bit deeper, you know, maybe send them for a second opinion on, on what's actually going on with that imaging to make sure that we didn't miss anything just because there, there have been scenarios where we've seen folks who have, you know, maybe seen folks who, who are professionals that didn't specialize in the, in the throwing community and, and things were missed. Um, I think we also see scenarios like thoracic outlet syndrome is something I've spoken about at length. And we'll see athletes that have had, you know, a collection of different symptoms in a number of different places, yet their, their shoulder and their MRIs, uh, excuse me, shoulder and elbow MRIs are clean. Um, and it's simply because those, those tests aren't, you know, really, really specific to this particular issue. It's, it's more of a diagnosis of exclusion. So, um, clean is open to interpretation and, and your interpretation is going to be dependent on the person that's, that's right in front of you. So just understand, you know, all the different factors that could be contributing, understand the research, what the norms are in various populations and, and then make your best judgment thereafter. For our third question, someone asked, why do shoulder surgeries in throwers have such a lower success rate than elbow surgeries? Now, I should say that we have to be really careful about generalizing, but, but I do agree. This is largely true. Um, particularly, you know, in, in the past, you know, several years where we've seen, you know, innovations on really the elbow surgery front, particularly respect to the UCL repair with internal brace where, you know, certain people are candidates to, to get a different kind of intervention with respect to the ligament to bring people back. Um, so I do think there's something to be said for that. But, um, before I dig in on why shoulder surgeries seem to struggle more than elbows, let's not overlook the fact that shoulders seem to have a higher success rate with conservative treatment. Um, you know, if you've got a full blown UCL tear, like you're going to surgery, there's no doubt about it. Now at the shoulder, you can have actually quite a bit of, you know, acute or chronic trauma that you can actually rehab and, and work around. And you'd be surprised at how many people have, you know, hundred million dollar contracts with full thickness rotator cuff tears in, in the major leagues. Um, and I think the real reason why this is the case is you have a 
you know, a lot of muscles that cross the joint. You have a, you know, collection of passive restraints in the, you know, in the joint capsule that, that also provide quite a bit of, of stability. And also you have, you know, the nerves and vascular structures that run across the, the joint that, that probably provide some stability as well. So, you know, you have 17 muscles alone that attach to the scapula. So there's a lot of stuff crossing there. So if, if one isn't doing its job, we have other ways that we can pick up the slack. Um, you know, to kind of make things work. So that's why I think, you know, you always want to kick the can down the road as much as you possibly can with respect to shoulder surgeries. Um, and, you know, we'll see people that'll, that'll nurse them around for many, many years. And, and I, I can tell you, you know, we have pro baseball players that we trained that I thought were going to have shoulder surgery years ago and we've been able to, to manage them and, you know, work them through a career. And I'm, I'm, I'm always blown away at how many different things you can do creatively to, to keep a shoulder from, from the OR. So, um, you know, I think that's something to consider, but, you know, to, to this individual's, you know, question, why are shoulder surgeries so tough to bounce back from? Well, well, first, compared to elbows, you definitely seem to have more soft tissue interventions and less ligament repairs. And in particular, we're, t- we're talking about the rotator cuff. Um, you know, when I talk about shoulders, I don't, I don't really view like lat repairs and things like that underneath this umbrella. But when you're talking about the rotator cuff, um, you know, it's a little bit tricky just because most of the data on you know, outcomes of rotator cuff surgeries refers to, you know, to people who are significantly older. So, you know, people in their 60s, 70s, 80s are going to have a higher failure rate. Um, it's confounded by the fact that, you know, smokers, folks with low vitamin D, they tend to have poor outcomes, um, you know, with, with surgeries and, and really the, the retear rate is is all over the place in various studies that the, the ones i've looked at it range from 11 to 94 percent interestingly you know the majority have have good outcomes and i think that speaks to the fact that a lot of the people that had surgery probably should have just gone to rehab in the first place and you know they were forced to rehab and, and take a little bit of downtime um, because they had this surgery but i do think that the failure rates are really high um you know, on these in part, because there, there is an element of, of, you know, it being chronic where people are waiting a long time to get something fixed. And when you wait that long, whether it's in the general population or, you know, it's even an athletic population that's had a chronically failing rotator cuff, you know, you have a few different challenges. One, you know, there's, there's fat accumulation in the tendon itself. Um, you start to have some atrophy. You can have retraction where it pulls back and, you know, it's harder to, to get a really good reattachment. And then we also know is that, um, you know, poor blood blood supply, you know, to the tendon is a, is a big issue with the rotator cuff. Like they, they just don't have the same blood supply that you can get to muscles. Um, and, and that's a really, you know, significant thing. I do think that some of this will be changing with things like biologics, like stem cells, PRP, they, they already seem to be changing the game, um, you know, with, with how folks are managed conservatively, that it does seem like there's also an, an intervention to be had for, um, you know, stem cells at the, at the time of shoulder uh, intervention. So um, these are, these are important considerations, but, you know, I think that's a big picture why, why a lot of people have, you know, troubles, you see more ligament repairs at the elbow and you see more, you know, soft tissue in particular, the rotator cuff at the shoulder. Certainly there's, you know, scenarios where, you know, someone may have like a, you know, a cleanup, um, or, you know, obviously even like a labor repair, that's a little bit different, but, um, you know, I, I think when you, anytime you're trying to get, um, you know, basically a, a reattachment of something that's pulled off. That's a little bit tricky at the elbow. Obviously we're taking a tendon from somewhere else. We're asked to become a ligament and take some time for the, you know, the, to take on those biologic properties. Um, you know, the second thing I think we, we need to think about is the shoulder really requires much more mobility than the elbow and the throwing motion. Um, you know, elbow is largely a hinge and, and when it gets asked to do too much, that's when injuries really happen and we start to see too much valgus stress for a hinge. But, um, you know, shoulder has to go through a wide variety 
variety of positions during the throwing delivery. And I think for a surgeon and, you know, for the, the physical therapist, um, you know, that takes the baton after that, that surgeon does his thing. And it's really a balancing act to not make that shoulder too stiff post-operatively. If you don't get your shoulder external rotation back, you're either not going to throw hard when you come back, um, or you're going to do whatever you possibly can to get your arm back. And in many cases, you're going to, you know, blow out an elbow or have some other kind of issue. So, um, you know, that high level of, of mobility demands in multiple planes of motion is a really big deal for the shoulder. And I think it's why, you know, you'd be really careful about people spending too much time in a sling after a surgery. And there's, you know, it's a he obviously a heavily debated point in the industry, but that's something we need to be really mindful of. And then last but not least, my, my third point is that you, you very simply have higher velocities, you know, at the shoulder than you do at the elbow. If you look at, you know, the shoulder, 7,000 degrees per second of internal rotation during the acceleration phase of throwing. That's the single fastest motion in all of sports. Meanwhile, you look at elbow extension. It's about 2,000 degrees per second um, of elbow extension. So we're, we're talking about, you know, one quarter of the forces at the elbow compared to the shoulder. It's a much larger joint. It's expected to, to do more work and take on more stress. And, and obviously, we get into trouble when, when the shoulder's not doing its job and the elbow, you know, basically has to pay the price for it. But, you know, big picture, shoulder, you know, does better conservatively historically. But when it comes to actual interventions, you know, the, the fact that it's soft tissue, especially the rotator cuff, that's concerning. You know, the shoulder requires a lot more mobility, both from the surgical intervention and the rehab process. And then, you know, at the end of the day, it's always going to be exposed to higher velocities. So you have to be that much more perfect with your return to throwing program. Um, you know, otherwise you're going to really set people back. So hopefully you found this Q&A um, beneficial. Obviously, it, it trended more in the clinical direction. Um, we're always interested in hearing your feedback. Um, so we'd love it if you, you know, contribute some ideas with respect to, to future uh, Q&As. You can always uh, send us direct messages on Instagram or reply to you know, our videos as you post them or as we post them. Or you can reach out to EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. And certainly, um, if you like what you hear, we'd be thrilled if you consider you know, subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review on iTunes. Um, any support is certainly appreciated. Have a great week.